0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, Except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, radio-free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. Recording by Kelly, Malinois Farm, Pembroke, Georgia. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 4, Chapter 16. Unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Infected minds to their deaf pillows will discharge their secrets more needs she the divine than the physician, Macbeth. On the following evening, the view of the convent towers, rising among the shadowy woods, reminded Emily of the nun, whose condition had so much affected her. And, anxious to know how she was, as well as to see some of her former friends, she and the Lady Blanche extended their walk to the monastery. At the gate stood a carriage, which, from the heat of the horses, appeared to have just arrived. But a more than common stillness pervaded the court and the cloisters, through which Emily and Blanche passed in their way to the great hall, where a nun, who was crossing to the staircase, replied to the inquiries of the former that Sister Agnes was still living and sensible, but that it was thought she could not survive the night. In the parlor they found several of the boarders, who rejoiced to see Emily, and told her many little circumstances that had happened in the convent since her departure, and which were interesting to her only because they related to persons whom she had regarded with affection. While they thus conversed, the abbess entered the room, and expressed much satisfaction at seeing Emily, but her manner was unusually solemn, and her countenance dejected. Also said she, after the first salutations were over, is truly a house of mourning. A daughter is now paying the debt of nature. You have heard, perhaps, that our daughter Agnes is dying. Emily expressed her sincere concern. Her death presents to us a great and awful lesson, continued the abbess. Let us read it and profit by it. Let it teach us to prepare ourselves for the change that awaits us all. You are young, and have it yet in your power to secure the peace that passeth all understanding, the peace of conscience. Preserve it in your youth, that it may comfort you in age. For vain, alas, and imperfect are the good deeds of our latter years, if those of our early life have been evil. Emily would have said that good deeds, she hoped, were never in vain, but she considered that it was the abbess who spoke, and she remains silent. The latter days of Agnes, resumed the abbess, have been exemplary. Would they might atone for the errors of her former ones. Her sufferings now, alas, are great. Let us believe that they will make her peace hereafter. I have left her with her confessor, and a gentleman, whom she has long been anxious to see, and who has just arrived from Paris they i hope will be able to administer the repose which her mind has hitherto wanted emily fervently joined in the wish during her illness she has sometimes named you resumed the abbess perhaps it would comfort her to see you when her present visitors have left her we will go to her chamber if the scene will not be too melancholy for your spirits but indeed to such scenes however painful we ought to accustom ourselves for they are salutary to the soul and prepare us for what we are ourselves to suffer emily became grave and thoughtful for this conversation brought to her recollection the dying moments of her beloved father and she wished once more to weep over the spot where his remains were buried during the silence which followed the abbess's speech Many minute circumstances attending his last hours occurred to her. His emotion on perceiving himself to be in the neighborhood of Chateau Le Blanc, his request to be interred in a particular spot in the church of this monastery, and the solemn charge he had delivered to her to destroy certain papers without examining them. She recollected also the mysterious and horrible words in those manuscripts upon which her eye had involuntarily glanced, and though they now, and indeed, whenever she remembered them, revived an excess of painful curiosity concerning their full import and the motives for her father's command, it was ever her chief consolation that she had strictly obeyed him in this particular. Little more was said by the abbess, who appeared too much affected by the subject she had lately left, to be willing to converse and her companions had been for some time silent from the same cause when this general reverie was interrupted by the entrance of a stranger, Monsieur Bonac, who had just quitted the chamber of Sister Agnes. He appeared much disturbed, but Emily fancied that his countenance had more the expression of horror than of grief. Having drawn the abbess to a distant part of the room, he conversed with her for some time, during which she seemed to listen with earnest attention, and he to speak with caution, and a more than common degree of interest. When he had concluded, he bowed silently to the rest of the company, and quitted the room. The abbess soon after proposed going to the chamber of Sister Agnes, to which Emily consented, though not without some reluctance, and Lady Blanche remained with the boarders below. At the door of the chamber, they met the confessor, whom, as he lifted up his head on their approach, Emily observed to be the same that had attended her dying father. But he passed on without noticing her, and they entered the apartment where, on a mattress, was laid Sister Agnes, with one nun watching in the chair beside her. Her countenance was so much changed that Emily would scarcely have recollected her, had she not been prepared to do so. It was ghastly and overspread with gloomy horror. Her dim and hollow eyes were fixed on a crucifix, which she held upon her bosom, and she was so much engaged in thought as not to perceive the abbess and Emily till they stood at the bedside. Then, turning her heavy eyes, she fixed them in wild horror upon Emily and screaming exclaimed, Ah, the vision comes upon me in my dying hours. Emily stared back in terror, and looked for explanation to the abbess, who made her signal not to be alarmed, and calmly said to Agnes, "'Daughter, I have brought Mademoiselle St. Aubert to visit you. I thought you would be glad to see her.' Agnes made no reply, but still gazing wildly upon Emily, exclaimed, "'It is her very self. Oh, there is all that fascination in her look which proved my destruction.' What would you have? What is you came to demand? Retribution? It will soon be yours. It is yours already. How many years have passed since last I saw you? My crime is but as yesterday. Yet I am grown old beneath it, while you are still young and blooming. Blooming is when you force me to commit that most abhorred deed. Oh, could I once forget it? Yet what would that avail? The deed is done. Emily, extremely shocked, would now have left the room but the abbess, taking her hand, tried to support her spirits and begged she would stay a few moments when Agnes would probably be calm, whom now she tried to soothe. But the latter seemed to disregard her while she still fixed her eyes on Emily and added, What are years of prayers and repentance? they cannot wash out the foulness of murder yes murder where is he where is he look there look there see where he stalks along the room why do you come to torment me now continued agnes while her straining eyes were bent on air why was i not punished before oh do not frown so sternly ha there again till she herself Why do you look so piteously upon me and smile too? Smile on me. What groan was that? Agnes sunk down, apparently lifeless, and Emily, unable to support herself, leaned against the bed while the abbess and the attendant nun were applying the usual remedies to Agnes. Peace, said the abbess, when Emily was going to speak. The delirium is going off. She will soon revive. When was she thus before, daughter? Not of many weeks, madam, replied the nun, but her spirits have been much agitated by the arrival of the gentleman she wished so much to see. Yes, observed the abbess, that has undoubtedly occasioned this paroxysm of frenzy. When she is better, we will leave her to repose. Emily very readily consented, but, Though she could now give little assistance, she was unwilling to quit the chamber while any might be necessary. When Agnes recovered her senses, she again fixed her eyes on Emily, but their wild expression was gone, and the gloomy melancholy had succeeded. It was some moments before she recovered sufficient spirits to speak. She then said feebly, The likeness is wonderful. Surely it must be something more than fancy. Tell me, I conjure you, she added, addressing Emily. Though your name is Saint-Aubert, are you not the daughter of the Marchioness? What Marchioness? said Emily, in extreme surprise, for she had imagined, from the calmness of Agnes's manner, that her intellects were restored. The abbess gave her a significant glance, but she repeated the question. What Marchioness? exclaimed Agnes. I know but of one the Marchioness de Villeroy. Emily, remembering the emotion of her late father upon the unexpected mention of this lady and his request to be laid near to the tomb of the Villaroys, now felt greatly interested and she entreated Agnes to explain the reason of her question. The abbess would now have withdrawn Emily from the room who being, however, detained by a strong interest, repeated her entreaties. ''Bring me that casket, sister,'' said Agnes, ''I will show her to you. ''Yet you need only look in that mirror, and you will behold her. ''You surely are her daughter. ''Such striking resemblance is never found, but among near relations.'' The nun brought the casket, and Agnes, having directed her how to unlock it, she took thence a miniature, in which Emily perceived the exact resemblance of the picture, which she had found among her late father's papers. Agnes held out her hand to receive it, gazed upon it earnestly for some moments in silence, and then, with a countenance of deep despair, threw up her eyes to heaven and prayed inwardly. When she had finished, she returned the miniature to Emily. Keep it, said she, I bequeath it to you, for I must believe it is your right. I have frequently observed the resemblance between you but never till this day did it strike upon my conscience so powerfully stay sister do not remove the casket there is another picture i would show emily trembled with expectation and the abbess again would have withdrawn her agnes is still disordered said she you observe how she wanders in these moods she says anything and does not scruple as you have witnessed to accuse herself of the most horrible crimes. Emily, however, thought she perceived something more than madness in the inconsistencies of Agnes, whose mention of the Marchioness and production of her picture had interested her so much that she determined to obtain further information, if possible, respecting the subject of it. The nun returned with the casket and Agnes pointing out to her a secret drawer she took from it another miniature. Here, said Agnes, as she offered it to Emily, learn a lesson for your vanity. At least, look well at this picture, and see if you can discover any resemblance between what I was and what I am. Emily impatiently received the miniature, which her eyes had scarcely glanced upon, before her trembling hands had nearly suffered it to fall. It was the resemblance of the portrait of Signora Lorente, which she had formerly seen in the castle of Udolpho, the lady who had disappeared in so mysterious a manner and whom Montoni had been suspected of having caused to be murdered. In silent astonishment, Emily continued to gaze alternately upon the picture and the dying nun, endeavoring to trace a resemblance between them, which no longer existed. "'Why do you look so sternly on me?' said Agnes, mistaking the nature of Emily's emotion. "'I have seen this face before,' said Emily at length. "'Was it really your resemblance?' "'You may well ask that question,' replied the nun. "'But it was once esteemed a striking likeness of me. "'Look at me well, and see what guilt has made me. "'I then was innocent. "'The evil passions of my nature slept.' "'Sister,' added she solemnly, and stretching forth her cold, damp hand to Emily, who shuddered at its touch, "'Sister, beware of the first indulgence of the passions. Beware of the first. Their course, if not checked then, is rapid. Their force is uncontrollable. They lead us, we know, not whither. They lead us, perhaps, to the commission of crimes.' For which whole years of prayer and penitence cannot atone such may be the force of even a single passion that it overcomes every other and sears up every other approach to the heart possessing us like a fiend it leads us on to the acts of a fiend making us insensible to pity and to conscience and when its purpose is accomplished like a fiend it leaves us to the torture of those feelings which its power had suspended, not annihilated, to the tortures of compassion, remorse, and conscience. Then we awaken as from a dream and perceive a new world around us. We gaze in astonishment and horror, but the deed is committed. Not all the powers of heaven and earth united can undo it, and the specters of conscience will not fly. What are riches, grandeur, health itself, to the luxury of a pure conscience, the health of the soul, and with the sufferings of poverty, disappointment, despair, to the anguish of an afflicted one? Oh, how long is it since I knew that luxury? I believed that I had suffered the most agonizing pangs of human nature in love, jealousy, and despair. But these pangs were ease, compared with the stings of conscience, which I have since endured, I tasted, too, what was called the sweet of revenge, but it was transient, it expired even with the object that provoked it. Remember, sister, that the passions are the seeds of vices as well as of virtues, from which either may spring, accordingly as they are nurtured. Unhappy they, who have never been taught the art to govern them." "'Alas, unhappy,' said the abbess and ill-informed of our holy religion. Emily listened to Agnes in silent awe while she still examined the miniature and became confirmed in her opinion of its strong resemblance to the portrait at Udolpho. This face is familiar to me, said she, wishing to lead the nun to an explanation, yet fearing to discover too abruptly her knowledge of Udolpho. You are mistaken, replied Agnes. You certainly never saw that picture before. No, replied Emily, but I have seen one extremely like it. Impossible, said Agnes, who may now be called the Lady Laurentini. It was in the castle of Udolpho, continued Emily, looking steadfastly at her. Of Udolpho, exclaimed Laurentini. Of Udolpho in Italy? The same, replied Emily you know me then said Laurentini and you are the daughter of the Marchioness Emily was somewhat surprised at this abrupt assertion I am the daughter of the late Saint Albert said she and the lady you name is an utter stranger to me at least you believe so rejoined Laurentini Emily asked what reasons there could be to believe otherwise the family likeness that you bear her said the nun the Marchioness it is known was attracted to a gentleman of Gascony at the time when she accepted the hand of the Marquis by the command of her father, ill-fated, unhappy woman. Emily, remembering the extreme emotion which Saint-Aubert had betrayed on the mention of the Marchioness, would now have suffered something more than surprise had her confidence in his integrity been less. As it was, she could not, for a moment, believe what the words of Laurentini insinuated yet she still felt strongly interested concerning them, and begged that she would explain them further. Do not urge me on that subject, said the nun. It is to me a terrible one. Would that I could blot it from my memory. She sighed deeply, and after the pause of a moment asked Emily by what means she had discovered her name. By your portrait in the castle of Udolpho, to which this miniature bears a striking resemblance, replied Emily. You have been at Udolpho then, said the nun, with great emotion. Alas, what scenes does the mention of it revive in my fancy? Scenes of happiness, of suffering, and of horror. At this moment, the terrible spectacle which Emily had witnessed in a chamber of that castle occurred to her, and she shuddered while she looked upon the nun and recollected her late words that years of prayer and penitence could not wash out the foulness of murder. She was now compelled to attribute these to another cause than that of delirium. With a degree of horror that almost deprived her of sense, she now believed she looked upon a murderer. All the recollected behavior of Laurentini seemed to confirm the supposition. Yet Emily was still lost in a labyrinth of perplexities and, not knowing how to ask the questions, which might lead to the truth, she could only hint them in broken sentences. Your sudden departure from Udolpho, said she. Laurentini groaned. The reports that followed it, continued Emily. The West Chamber, the mournful veil, the object it conceals, when murders are committed. The nun shrieked. What? There, again! said she endeavoring to raise herself while her staring eyes seemed to follow some object around the room come from the grave what blood blood too there was no blood thou canst not say it nay do not smile do not smile so piteously laurentini fell into convulsions as she uttered the last words and emily unable any longer to endure the horror of the scene hurried from the room and sent some nuns to the assistance of the abbess. The Lady Blanche and the boarders who were in the parlor, now assembled around Emily, and alarmed by her manner and a frightened countenance, asked a 100 questions, which she avoided answering further than by saying that she believed Sister Agnes was dying. They received this as a sufficient explanation of her terror, and had then leisure to offer restoratives, which at length somewhat revived Emily whose mind was however so much shocked with the terrible surmises and perplexed with doubts by some words from the nun that she was unable to converse and would have left the convent immediately had she not wished to know whether Laurentini would survive the late attack after waiting some time she was informed that the convulsions having ceased Laurentini seemed to be reviving and Emily and Blanche were departing when the abbess appeared, who, drawing the former aside, said she had something of consequence to say to her. But as it was late, she would not detain her then, and requested to see her on the following day. Emily promised to visit her, and having taken leave, returned with the Lady Blanche towards the chateau, on the way to which the deep gloom of the woods made Blanche lament that the evening was so far advanced for the surrounding stillness and obscurity rendered her sensible of fear. Though there was a servant to protect her, while Emily was too much engaged by the horrors of the scene she had just witnessed to be affected by the solemnity of the shades, otherwise than as they served to promote her gloomy reverie, from which, however, she was at length recalled by the Lady Blanche, who pointed out at some distance, in the dusky path they were winding, two persons slowly advancing. It was impossible to avoid them without striking into a still more secluded part of the wood, whither the strangers might easily follow. But all apprehension vanished, when Emily distinguished the voice of Monsieur Dupont, and perceived that his companion was the gentleman whom she had seen at the monastery, and who was now conversing with so much earnestness as not immediately to perceive their approach. When Dupont joined the ladies, the stranger took leave. And they proceeded to the chateau where the count when he heard of monsieur Bonoc, claimed him for an acquaintance and on learning the melancholy occasion of his visit to languedoc and that he was lodged at a small inn in the village begged the favor of monsieur de pont to invite him to the chateau the latter was happy to do so and the scruples of reserve which made monsieur banach hesitate to accept the invitation began at length overcome, they went to the chateau, where the kindness of the count and the sprightliness of his son were exerted to dissipate the gloom that overhung the spirits of the stranger. Monsieur Benac was an officer in the French service, and appeared to be about fifty. His figure was tall and commanding. His manners had received the last polish, and there was something in his countenance uncommonly interesting, for over features which in youth must have been remarkably handsome, was spread a melancholy that seemed the effect of long misfortune rather than of constitution or temper. The conversation he held during supper was evidently an effort of politeness, and there were intervals in which, unable to struggle against the feelings that depressed him, he relapsed into silence and abstraction from which, however, the Count sometimes withdrew him in a manner so delicate and benevolent that Emily, while she observed him, almost fancied she beheld her late father. The party separated at an early hour, and then, in the solitude of her apartment, the scenes which Emily had lately witnessed returned to her fancy with dreadful energy. That in the dying nun she should have discovered Signora Laurentini, who instead of having been murdered by Montoni, was, as now it seemed, herself guilty of some dreadful crime, excited both horror and surprise in a high degree. Nor did the hints which she had dropped respecting the marriage of the Marchioness de Villeroy, and the inquiries she had made concerning Emily's birth, occasion her a less degree of interest, though it was of a different nature. The history, which Sister Frances had formerly related, had said to be that of Agnes, it now appeared was erroneous. But for what purpose it had been fabricated, unless the more effectually to conceal the true story, Emily could not even guess. Above all, her interest was excited as to the relation, which the story of the late Marchioness de Villeroy bore to that of her father, for that some kind of relation existed between them the grief of Saint-Aubert upon hearing her named, his request to be buried near her, and her picture, which had been found among his papers, certainly proved. Sometimes it occurred to Emily that he might have been the lover to whom it was said the marchioness was attached, when she was compelled to marry the Marquis de Villeroy, but that had afterwards cherished a passion for her. She could not suffer herself to believe for a moment the papers which he had so solemnly enjoined her to destroy she now fancied had related to this connection and she wished more earnestly than before to know the reasons that made him consider the injunction necessary which had her faith in his principles been less would have led to believe that there was a mystery in her birth dishonorable to her parents which those manuscripts might have revealed. Reflections similar to these engaged her mind during the greater part of the night, and when at length she fell into a slumber, it was only to behold a vision of the dying nun, and to awaken in horrors like those she had witnessed. On the following morning she was too much indisposed to attend her appointment with the abbess, and before the day concluded, she heard that Sister Agnes was no more. Monsieur Banach received this intelligence with concern but Emily observed that he did not appear so much affected now as on the preceding evening, immediately after quitting the apartment of the nun, whose death was probably less terrible to him than the confession he had been then called upon to witness. However this might be, he was perhaps consoled, in some degree, by a knowledge of the legacy bequeathed him, since his family was large, and the extravagance of some part of it had lately been the means of involving him in great distress and even in the horrors of a prison, and it was the grief he had suffered from the wild career of a favorite son, with the pecuniary anxieties and misfortunes consequent upon it, that had given to his countenance the air of dejection which had so much interested Emily. To his friend, Monsieur Dupont, he recited some particulars of his late sufferings, when it appeared that he had been confined for several months in one of the prisons of Paris, with little hope of release and without the comfort of seeing his wife who had been absent in the country endeavoring though in vain to procure assistance from his friends when at length she had obtained an order for admittance she was so much shocked at the change which long confinement and sorrow had made in his appearance that she was seized with fits which by their long continuance threatened her life our situation affected those who happened to witness it continued Monsieur Benach, and one generous friend, who was in confinement at the same time, afterwards employed the first moments of his liberty in efforts to obtain mine. He succeeded, the heavy debt that oppressed me was discharged, and when I would have expressed my sense of the obligation I had received, my benefactor was fled from my search. I have reason to believe he was the victim of his own generosity and that he returned to the state of confinement from which he had released me, but every inquiry after him was unsuccessful. Amiable and unfortunate, Valancourt. Valancourt exclaimed Monsieur DuPont, of what family? The Valancourt's Counts DuVarnay, replied Monsieur Banach. The emotion of Monsieur DuPont when he discovered the generous benefactor of his friend to be the rival of his love, can only be imagined. But having overcome his first surprise, he dissipated the apprehensions of Monsieur Bonac by acquainting him that Valancourt was at liberty and had lately been in Languedoc, after which his affection for Emily prompted him to make some inquiries respecting the conduct of his rival during his stay at Paris, of which Monsieur Mushrobanak appeared to be well informed. The answers he received were such as convinced him that Valancourt had been much misrepresented and, painful as was the sacrifice, he formed the just design of relinquishing his pursuit of Emily to a lover who, it now appeared, was not unworthy of the regard which she honored him. The conversation of Monsieur Bernat discovered that Valancourt, sometime after his arrival at Paris, had been drawn into the snares which determined vice had spread for him, and that his hours had been chiefly divided between the parties of the captivating marchioness and those gaming assemblies to which the envy, or the avarice, of his brother officers had spared no art to seduce him. In these parties he had lost large sums in efforts to recover small ones, and to such losses the Count de Villefort and Monsieur Henre had been frequent witnesses his resources were at length exhausted, and the Count, his brother, exasperated by his conduct, refused to continue the supplies necessary to his present mode of life. And when Valancourt, in consequence of accumulated debts, was thrown into confinement, where his brother suffered him to remain, in the hope that punishment might effect a reform of conduct which had not yet been confirmed by long habit. In the solitude of his prison, Valancourt, had leisure for reflection, and cause for repentance. Here, too, the image of Emily, which amidst the dissipation of the city had been obscured, but never obliterated from his heart, revived with all the charms of innocence and beauty, to reproach him for having sacrificed his happiness and debased his talents by pursuits, which his nobler faculties would formerly have taught him to consider were as tasteless as they were degrading. But though his passions had been seduced, his heart was not depraved, nor had habit riveted the chains that hung heavily on his conscience. And as he retained that energy of will, which was necessary to burst them, he at length emancipated himself from the bondage of vice, but not till after much effort and severe suffering. Being released by his brother from the prison, where he had witnessed the affecting meeting between Mushrobanak and his wife, with whom he had been for some time acquainted, the first use of his liberty formed a striking instance of his humanity and his rashness, for with nearly all the money just received from his brother, he went to a gaming house, and gave it as a last stake for the chance of restoring his friend to freedom, and to his afflicted family. The event was fortunate, and while he had awaited the issue of this momentous stake, he had made a solemn vow never again to yield to the destructive and fascinating vice of gaming. Having restored the venerable Monsieur Benach to his rejoicing family, he hurried from Paris to Estuver, and in the delight of having made the wretched happy, forgot for a while his own misfortunes. Soon, however, he remembered that he had thrown away the fortune without which he could never hope to marry Emily, and life unless passed with her, now scarcely appeared supportable, for her goodness, refinement, and simplicity of heart rendered her beauty more enchanting, if possible, to his fancy than it had ever yet appeared. Experience had taught him to understand the full value of the qualities which he had before admired, but which the contrasted characters he had seen in the world made him now adore. And these reflections, increasing the pangs of remorse and regret, occasioned the deep dejection that had accompanied him even into the presence of Emily, of whom he considered himself no longer worthy. To the ignominy of having received pecuniary obligations from the Marchioness Chamfort, or any other lady of intrigue, as the Count of Efort had been informed, or of having been engaged in the depredating schemes of gamesters, Valancourt had never submitted, and these were some of such scandals, as often mingle with truth, against the unfortunate. Count de Villefort had received them from authority, which he had no reason to doubt, and which the imprudent conduct he had himself witnessed in Balancourt had certainly induced him the more readily to believe. Being such as Emily could not name to the Chevalier, he had no opportunity of refuting them and when he confessed himself to be unworthy of her esteem, he little suspected that he was confirming to her the most dreadful calumnies. Thus the mistake had been mutual, and had remained so, when Monsieur Benoc explained the conduct of his generous but imprudent young friend to DuPont, who, with severe justice, determined not only to undeceive the count on this subject, but to resign all hope of Emily, such a sacrifice as his love rendered this was deserving of a noble reward, and Monsieur Benoc, if it had been possible for him to forget the benevolent Valancourt, would have wished that Emily might accept the just Dupont. When the Count was informed of the error he had committed, he was extremely shocked at the consequence of his credulity, and the account which Monsieur Benanc gave of his friend's situation While at paris convinced him that valencourt had been entrapped by the schemes of a set of dissipated young men with whom his profession had partly obliged him to associate rather than by an indication to vice and charmed by the humanity and noble though rash generosity which his conduct towards monsieur banak exhibited he forgave him the transient errors that had stained his youth and restored him to the high degree of esteem with which he had regarded him during their early acquaintance. But as the least reparation he could now make Valancourt was to afford him an opportunity of explaining to Emily his former conduct, he immediately wrote to request his forgiveness of the unintentional injury he had done him, and to invite him to Chateau Blanc. Motives of delicacy withheld the Count from informing Emily of this letter, and of kindness from acquainting her with the discovery respecting Valancourt, till his arrival should save her from the possibility of anxiety, as to its event. And this precaution spared her even severer inquietude than the count had foreseen, since he was ignorant of the symptoms of despair which Valancourt's late conduct had betrayed. End of volume four, chapter sixteen. Recorded december two thousand eight, Malinois Farm, Pembroke, Georgia.
1: Recording by Valli The Mysteries of Udolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume four chapter seventeen. But in these cases we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions which, being taught, return to plague the inventor, thus even handed justice commence the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. Macbeth. Some circumstances of an extraordinary nature, now withdrew true Emily, from her own sorrows and excited emotions, which partook of both surprise and horror. A few days followed that on which Signora Laurentini died, her will was opened at the monastery in the presence of the superiors and Monsieur Bonac, when it was found that one third of her personal property was bequeathed to the nearest surviving relative of the late Martianus de Leroy and that Emily was the person. With the secret of Emily's family, the abbess had long been acquainted, and it was an observance of the earnest request of Sanobur, who was known to a friar, that attended him on his deathbed, that his daughter had remained in ignorance of her relationship to the Marchioness, but some hints which had fallen from Signora Laurentini during her last interview with Emily, and a confession of a very extraordinary nature given in her dying hours, had made the Abbess think it necessary to converse with her young friend on the topic she had not before ventured to introduce, and it was for this purpose that she had requested to see her on the morning that followed her interview with the nun. Emily's indisposition had then prevented the intended conversation, but now, after the will had been examined, she received a summons, which she immediately obeyed and became informed of circumstances that powerfully affected her. As the narrator of the Abyss was, however, deficient in many particulars, of which the reader may wish to be informed, and the history of the nun is materially connected with the fate of the Marchioness de Villeroy, we shall omit the conversation that passed in the parlor of the convent, and mingle with our relation a brief history of Laurentini Diodolfo who was the only child of her parents, and heiress of the ancient house of Udolfo, in the territory of Venice. It was the first misfortune of her life that which led to all her succeeding misery, that the friends, who ought to have restrained her strong passions and mildly instructed her in the art of governing them, nurtured them by early indulgence. But they cherished their own failings in her, for their conduct was not the result of rational kindness, and when they either indulged or opposed the passions of their child, they gratified their own. Thus they indulged her with weakness and reprehended her with violence. Her spirit was exasperated by their vehemence, Instead of being corrected by their wisdom, and their oppositions became contest for victory, in which the due tenderness of the parents and the affectionate duties of the child were equally forgotten. But as returning fondness disarmed the parents' resentment soonest, Laurentine was suffered to believe that she had conquered, and. Her passions became stronger by every effort that had been employed to subdue them. The death of her father and mother in the same year left her to her own discretion under the dangerous circumstances attendant on youth and beauty. She was fond of company, delighted with admiration, yet disdainful of the opinion of the world when it happened to contradict her inclinations, had a gay and brilliant wit, and was mistress of all the arts of fascination. Her conduct was such as might have been expected, from the weakness of her principles and the strength of her passions. Among her numerous admirers was the late Marquis de Villeroy, who, on his tour through Italy, saw Laurentini at Venice where she usually resided and became her passionate adorer. Equally captivated by the figure and accomplishments of the Marquis, who was at that period one of the most distinguished noblemen of the French court, she had the art so effectually to conceal from him the dangerous traits of her character and the blemishes of her late conduct that he solicited her hand in marriage. Before the nuptials were concluded, she retired to the castle of Udolpho, whither the marquis followed, and there her conduct, relaxing from the propriety which she had lately assumed, discovered to him the precipice on which he stood. A minuter inquiry than he had before thought it necessary to make convinced him that he had been deceived in her character, and she, whom he had designed for his wife, afterwards became his mistress. Having passed some weeks at Udolfo, he was called abruptly to France, whither he returned with extreme reluctance for his heart was still fascinated by that of Laurentini, with whom, however, he had on various pretenses delayed his marriage. But to reconcile her to this separation, he now gave repeated promises of returning to conclude the nuptials, as soon as the affair, which thus suddenly called him to France, should permit. Soothed in some degree by these assurances, she suffered him to depart, and soon after her relative Montoni, arriving at Udolfo, renewed their dresses which she had before refused, and which she now again rejected. Meanwhile, her thoughts were constantly with the Marquis de Villeroy, for whom she suffered all the delirium of Italian love. Cherished by the solitude to which she confined herself For she had now lost all taste for the pleasures of society and the gaiety of amusement Her only indulgences were to sigh and weep over a miniature of the Marquis To visit the scenes that had witnessed their happiness To pour forth her heart to him in writing and to count the weeks the days Which must intervene before the period that he had mentioned as probable for his return. But this period passed without bringing him, and week after week followed in heavy and almost intolerable expectation. During this interval, Laurentine's fancy, occupied incessantly by one idea, became disordered, and her whole heart. Being devoted to one object, life became hateful to her, when she believed that object lost. Several months passed, during which she heard nothing about the Marquis de Villeroy, and her days were marked at intervals with the frenzy of passion and the sullenness of despair. She secluded herself from all visitors, and sometimes, remained in her apartment for weeks together, refusing to speak to every person except her favorite female attendant, writing scraps of letter, reading again and again those she had received from the Marquis, weeping over his picture and speaking to it, for many years, upbraiding, reproaching and caressing it alternately. At length, a report reached her that the Marquis had married in France, and after suffering all the extremes of love, jealousy and indignation, she formed the desperate resolution of going secretly to that country, and, if the report proved true, of attempting a deep revenge. To her favorite woman only, she confided the plan of her journey and she engaged her to partake of it. Having collected her jewels, which descending to her from many branches of her family were of immense value, and all her cash to a very large amount, they were packed in a trunk, which was privately conveyed to a neighbouring town, whither Laurentini, with this only servant, followed, and thence proceeded secretly to Legon, where then embarked for France. When, on her arrival in Languedoc, she found that the Marquis de Villeroy had been married for some months, her despair almost deprived her of reason, and she alternately projected and abandoned the horrible design of murdering the Marquis, his wife and herself. At length, she contrived to throw herself in his way with an intention of reproaching him for his conduct and of stabbing herself in his presence. But when she again saw him who so long had been the constant object of her thoughts and affections, resentment yielded to love, her resolution failed. She trembled with the conflict of emotions that assailed her heart and fainted away. The Marquis was not proof against her beauty and sensibility. All the energy with which he had first loved returned, for his passion had been resisted by prudence, rather than overcome by indifference, and since the honor of his family would not permit him to marry her, he had endeavoured to subdue his love, and had so far succeeded as to select the then Marquis for his wife whom he loved at first with a tempered and rational affection. But the mild virtues of that amiable lady did not recompense him for her indifference, which appeared notwithstanding her efforts to conceal it, and he had for some time suspected that her affections were engaged by another person, when Laurentini arrived in Languedoc. This artful Italian soon perceived, that she had regained her influence over him, and soothed by the discovery she determined to live, and to employ all her enchantments to win his consent to the diabolical deed, which she believed was necessary to the security of her happiness. She conducted her scheme with deep dissimulation and patient perseverance and having completely estranged the affections of the Marquis from his wife, whose gentle goodness and unimpassioned manners had ceased to please. When contrasted with the captivations of the Italian, she proceeded to awaken in his mind the jealousy of pride, for it was no longer that of love, and even pointed out to him the person to whom she affirmed the marchioness. Had sacrificed her honor, but Laurentini had first extracted from him a solemn promise to Phobia avenging himself upon his rival. This was an important part of her plan, for she knew that if his desire of vengeance was restrained towards one party, it would burn more fiercely towards the other, and he might then perhaps we prevailed on to assist in the horrible act which would release him from the only barrier that withheld him from making her his wife. The innocent Martianus, meanwhile, observed with extreme grief the alteration in her husband's manners. He became reserved and thoughtful in her presence. His conduct was austere, and sometimes even rude and he left her for many hours together to weep for his unkindness and to form plans for the recovery of his affection his conduct afflicted her the more because in obedience to the command of her father she had accepted his hand though her affections were engaged to another whose amiable disposition she had reason to believe would have ensured her happiness this circumstance, Laurentini had discovered soon after her arrival in France, and had made ample use of it in assisting her designs upon the Marquis, to whom she adduced such seeming proof of his wife's infidelity that in a frantic rage of wounded honour he consented to destroy his wife. A slow poison was administered and she fell a victim to the jealousy and subtlety of Laurentini and to the guilty weakness of her husband. But the moment of Laurentini's triumph, the moment to which she had looked forward for the completion of all her wishes, proved only the commencement of a suffering that never left her to her dying hour. The passion of revenge, which had in part stimulated her to the commission of this atrocious deed, died even at the moment when it was gratified, and left her to the horrors of unavailing pity and remorse, which would probably have empoisoned all the years she had promised herself with the marquis de Villeroy, had her expectations of an alliance with him been realized. But he too had found the moment of his revenge to be that of remorse as to himself and detestation as to the partner of his crime. The feeling which he had mistaken for conviction was no more, and he stood astonished and aghast that no proof remained of his wife's infidelity now that she had suffered the punishment of guilt. Even when he was informed that she was dying, he had felt suddenly and unaccountably reassured of her innocence. Nor was the solemn assurance she made him in her dying hour capable of affording him a stronger conviction of her blameless conduct. In the first horrors of remorse and despair, he felt inclined to deliver up himself and the woman who had plunged him into this abyss of guilt into the hands of justice. But when the paroxysm of his suffering was over, his intention changed. Florentini, however, he saw only once afterwards, and that was to curse her as the instigator of his crime, and to say that he spared her life only on condition that she passed the rest of her days in prayer and penance. Overwhelmed with disappointment, on receiving contempt and abhorrence from the man for whose sake she had not scrupled to stain her conscience with human blood, and touched with horror of the unavailing crime she had committed, she renounced the world and retired to the monastery of St. Clair, a dreadful victim to unresisted passion. The Marquis Immediately after the death of his wife, quitted Chatterley Blanc, to which he never returned, and endeavored to lose the sense of his crime amidst the tumult of war, or the dissipations of a capital. But his efforts were vain. A deep dejection hung over him ever after, for which his most intimate friend could not account, and he at length died with a degree of horror nearly equal to that which Laurentini had suffered. The physician who had observed the singular appearance of the unfortunate Marchioness after death had been bribed to silence, and as the surmises of a few servants had proceeded no further than a whisper, the affair had never been investigated. Whether this whisper ever reached the father of the Marcianus, and if it did, whether the difficulty of obtaining proof deterred him from prosecuting the Marquis de Villeroy is uncertain. But her death was deeply lamented by some part of her family, and particularly by her brother, Montier Sanobo, for that was the degree of relationship which had existed between Emily's father and the Marcianus, and there is no doubt that he suspected the manner of her death. Many letters passed between the Marcus and him, soon after the decease of his beloved sister, the subject of which was not known, but there is reason to believe that they related to the cause of her death. And these were the papers, together with some letters of the Marchioness, who had confided to her brother the occasion of her unhappiness, which Sainabar had so solemnly enjoined his daughter to destroy, and anxiety for her peace had probably made him forbid her to inquire into the melancholy story to which they alluded. Such, indeed, has been his affliction on the premature death of his favourite sister, whose unhappy marriage had from the first excited his tenderest pity, that he could never hear her named or mention her himself after her death, except to Madame Sanobu. From Emily, whose sensibility he feared to awaken, he had so carefully concealed her history and name that she was ignorant till now that she ever had such a relative as the Marcianus de Villeroy, and from this motive he had enjoined silence to his only surviving sister, Madame Sharon, who had scrupulously observed his request. It was over some of the last pathetic letters of the Marcianus that saint Aubert was weeping, when he was discovered by Emily on the eve of her departure from La Valley, and it was her picture which he had so tenderly caressed. Her disastrous death may account for the emotion he had betrayed on hearing her name by La Voisin and for his request to be interred near the monument of the Villeroyes, where her remains were deposited but not those of her husband, who was buried where he died in the north of France. The confessor, who attended saint in his last moments, recollected him to be the brother of the late Marcianus, Then saint from tenderness to Emily, had conjured him to conceal the circumstance, and to request that the abbess, to whose care he particularly recommended her would do the same, a request which had been exactly observed. Laurentini, on her arrival in France, had carefully concealed her name and family, and the better to disguise her real history had on entering the convent caused the story to be circulated, which had imposed on Sister Frances, and it is probable that the abbess who did not preside in the convent at the time of her novitiation was also entirely ignorant of the truth. The deep remorse that seized on the mind of Laurentini, together with the sufferings of disappointed passion, for she still loved the Marquis, again unsettled her intellect, and after the first paroxysms of despair were passed, a heavy and silent melancholy had settled upon her spirits. Which suffered few interruptions from fits of frenzy till the time of her death. During many years, it had been her only amusement to walk in the woods near the monastery in the solitary hours of night and to play upon a favorite instrument, to which she sometimes joined the delightful melody of her voice in the most solemn and melancholy airs of her native country, modulated by all the energetic feeling that dwelt in her heart. The physician who had attended her recommended it to the superior to indulge her in this whim as the only means of soothing her distempered fancy. And she was suffered to walk in the lonely hours of night attended by the servant who had accompanied her from Italy. But as the indulgence transgressed against the rules of the convent, it was kept as secret as possible. And thus, the mysterious music of Laurentini had combined with other circumstances to produce a report that not only the chateau, but its neighborhood was haunted. Soon after her entrance into this holy community, and before she had shown any symptoms of insanity there, she made a will in which, after bequeathing a considerable legacy to the convent, she divided the remainder of her personal property, which her jewels made very valuable, between the wife of Monsieur Bernard, who was an Italian lady, and her relation, and the nearest surviving relative of the late Marchioness de Villeroi. As Emily Sanover was not only The nearest but the sole relative, this legacy descended to her, and thus explained to her the whole mystery of her father's conduct. The resemblance between Emily and her unfortunate aunt had frequently been observed by Laurentini, and had occasioned the singular behaviour which had formerly alarmed her. But it was in the nun's dying hour when her conscience gave her perpetually the idea of the Martianus that she became more sensible than ever of this likeness, and in her frenzy deemed it no resemblance of the person she had injured but the original herself. The bold assertion that had followed on the recovery of her senses that Emily was the daughter of the Marchioness de Villeroi arose from a suspicion that she was so. For knowing that her rival, when she married the Marquis, was attached to another lover, she had scarcely scrupled to believe that her honour had been sacrificed, like her own, to an unresisted passion. Of a crime, however, To which Emily had suspected from her frenzied confession of murder that she had been instrumental in the castle of Udolpho, Laurentini was innocent, and she had herself been deceived concerning the spectacle that formerly occasioned her so much terror, and had since compelled her for a while to attribute the horrors of the nun to a consciousness of a murder committed in that castle. It may be remembered that in a chamber of Udo'olfo hung a black veil, whose singular situation had excited Emily's curiosity, and which afterwards disclosed an object that had overwhelmed her with horror. For on lifting it, there appeared, instead of the picture she had expected, within a recess of the wall a human figure of ghastly paleness, stretched at its length, and dressed in the habiliments of the grave. What added to the horror of the spectacle was that the face appeared partly decayed and disfigured by worms, which were visible on the features and hands. On such an object, it will be readily believed that no person could endure to look twice. Emily, may be recollected, had, after the first glance, let the wheel drop, and her terror had prevented her from ever after provoking a renewal of such suffering as she had then experienced. Had she dared to look again, her delusion and her fears would have vanished together, and she would have perceived that the figure before her was not human, but formed of wax, the history of it is somewhat extraordinary, though not without example, in the records of that fierce severity which monkish superstition has sometimes inflicted on mankind. A member of the house of Udolpho, having committed some offence against the prerogative of the Church, had been condemned to the penance of contemplating, during certain hours of the day, a waxen image, made to resemble a human body in the state to which it is reduced after death. This penance, serving as a memento of the condition to which he must himself arrive, had been designed to reprove the pride of the Marquis of Udolpho, who had formerly so much exasperated that of the Romish Church, and he had not only superstitiously observed this penance himself, which he had believed was to obtain a pardon for all his sins, but had made it a condition in his will that his descendants should preserve the image, on pain of forfeiting to the church a certain part of his domain, that they also might profit by the humiliating moral it conveyed. The figure, therefore, had been suffered to retain its station in the wall of the chamber, but his descendants excused themselves from observing the penance to which he had been enjoined. This image was so horribly natural that it is not surprising Emily should have mistaken it for the object it resembled, nor, since she had heard such an extraordinary account concerning the disappearing of the late lady of the castle and had such experience of the character of Montoni that she should have believed this to be the murdered body of the lady laurentini and that he had been the contriver of her death. the situation in which she had discovered it occasioned her at first much surprise and perplexity but the vigilance with which the doors of the chamber, where it was deposited, were afterwards secured, had compelled her to believe that Montigny, not daring to confide the secret of her death to any person, had suffered her remains to decay in this obscure chamber. The ceremony of the veil, however, and the circumstance of the doors having been left open even for a moment, had occasioned her much wonder and some doubts, but these were not sufficient to overcome her suspicion of Montani, and it was the dread of his terrible vengeance that had sealed her lips in silence concerning what she had seen in the West Chamber. Emily, in discovering the Marchioness de Villeroy to have been the sister of Monsieur Saint-Aubert, was variously affected, but amidst the sorrow, which she suffered for her untimely death, she was released from an anxious and painful conjecture, occasioned by the rash assertion of Signora Laurentini concerning her birth and the honor of her parents. Her faith in San principles would scarcely allow her to suspect that he had acted dishonorably and she felt such reluctance to believe herself the daughter of any other than her whom she had always considered and loved as a mother, that she would hardly admit such a circumstance to be possible. Yet the likeness which it had frequently been affirmed, she bore to the late Marcianis, the former behavior of Dorothy, the old housekeeper, the assertion of. Laurentini, and the mysterious attachment which Sanobar had discovered awakened doubts as to his connection with the Marchioness, which her reason could neither vanquish nor confirm. From these, however, she was now relieved, and all the circumstances of her father's conduct were fully explained. But her heart was oppressed by the melancholy catastrophe of her amiable relative, and by the awful lesson which the history of the nun exhibited, the indulgence of whose passions had been the means of leading her gradually to the commission of a crime, from the prophecy of which, in her early years, she would have recoiled in horror, and exclaimed that it could not be a crime, Which whole years of repentance and of the severest penance had not been able to obliterate from her conscience. End of Volume 4, Chapter 17.
2: The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 4, Chapter 18. Then fresh tears stood on her cheek, as doth the honey dew upon a gathered lily, almost withered. Shakespeare. After the late discoveries, Emily was distinguished at the chateau by the Count and his family, as a relative of the House of Villeroy, and received, if possible, more friendly attention than had yet been shown her. Count de Villefort's surprise at the delay of an answer to his letter, which had been directed to Valencourt at Estuviers, was mingled with a satisfaction for the prudence which had saved Emily from a share of the anxiety he now suffered. Though when he saw her still drooping under the effect of his former error, all his resolution was necessary to restrain him from relating the truth that would afford her momentary relief. The approaching nuptials of the Lady Blanche now divided his attention with the subject of his anxiety, for the inhabitants of the chateau were already busied in preparations for that event, and the arrival of Monsieur Lefoy was daily expected. In the gaiety which surrounded her, Emily vainly tried to participate, her spirits being depressed by the late discoveries and by the anxiety concerning the fate of Valancourt, that had been occasioned by the description of his manner when he had delivered the ring. She seemed to perceive in it the gloomy wilderness of despair and, when she considered to what that despair might have urged him, her heart sank with terror and grief. The state of suspense as to his safety, to which she believed herself condemned, till she should return to La Valais, appeared insupportable, and in such moments she could not even struggle to assume the composure that had left her mind, but would often abruptly quit the company she was with and endeavour to soothe her spirits in the deep solitudes of the woods that overbrowed the shore. Here, the faint roar of foaming waves that beat below and the sullen murmur of the wind among the branches around were circumstances in unison with the temper of her mind, and she would sit on a cliff or on the broken steps of her favourite watchtower, observing the changing colours of the evening clouds and the gloom of twilight draw over the sea. To the white tops of billows riding towards the shore could scarcely be discerned amidst the darkened waters. The lines engraved by Valancourt on this tower she frequently repeated with melancholy enthusiasm and then would endeavour to check the recollections and the grief they occasioned and to turn her thoughts to indifferent subjects. One evening having wandered with her lute to this her favourite spot she entered the ruined tower and ascended a winding staircase that led to a small chamber, which was less decayed than the rest of the building, and whence she had often gazed, with admiration, on the wide prospect of sea and land that extended below. The sun was now setting on that tract of the Pyrenees, which divided Languedoc from Roussillon, and, placing herself opposite to a small gated window, which, like the wood tops beneath and the waves lower still, Gleamed with the red glow of the West, she touched the chords of her lute in solemn symphony, and then accompanied it with her voice in one of the simple and affecting airs to which, in happier days, Valancourt had often listened in rapture, and which she now adapted to the following lines. To melancholy. Spirit of love and sorrow, hail! Thy solemn voice from far I hear, mingled with the evening's dying gale, Hail with a sadly pleasing tear. Oh, at this still, this lonely hour, thine own sweet hour of closing day, awake, thy lute, whose charmful power shall call up fancy to obey. To paint the wild romantic dream that meets the poet's musing eye, as, on the bank of shadowy stream, he breathes to her the fervid sigh. Oh, lonely spirit, Let thy song lead me through all thy sacred haunt The ministers of moonlight aisles along Where spectres raise the midnight chant I hear their dirges faintly swell Then sink at once in silence drear While from the pillared cloisters cell, Dimly their gliding forms appear Lead where the pine woods wave on high Whose pathless sod is darkly seen As the cold moon with trembling eye darts her long beams the leaves between lead to the mountain's dusky head where far below in shade profound wide forests, plains and hamlets spread and sad the chimes of vesper sound or guide me where the dashing oar just breaks the stillness of the vale, as slow it tracks the winding shore to meet the ocean's distant sail to pebbly banks that Neptune laves with measured surges loud and deep, where the dark cliff bends o'er the waves and wild the winds of autumn sweep. There pause at midnight's spectred hour and list the long resounding gale and catch the fleeting moonlight's power o'er forming seas and distant sail. The soft tranquillity of the scene below, where the evening breeze scarcely curled the water, or swelled the passing sail, that caught the last gleam of the sun, and where, now and then, a dipping oar was all that disturbed the trembling radiance, conspired with the tender melody of her lute to lull her mind into a state of gentle sadness, and she sung the mournful songs of past times, till the remembrances they awakened were too powerful for her heart. Her tears fell upon the lute, over which she drooped, and her voice trembled and was unable to proceed. Though the sun had now sunk behind the mountains, and even his reflected light was fading from their highest points, Emily did not leave the watchtower, but continued to indulge her melancholy reverie till a footstep at a little distance startled her, and on looking through the grate, she observed a person walking below, who, however, Soon perceiving to be Monsieur Bonac, she returned to the quiet thoughtfulness his step had interrupted. After some time, she again struck her lute and sung her favourite air, but again a step disturbed her and, as she paused to listen, she heard it ascending the staircase of the tower. The gloom of the hour, perhaps, made her sensible to some degree of fear, which she might not otherwise have felt for, only a few minutes before, she had seen Monsignor Bonnat pass. The steps were quick and bounding, and, in the next moment, the door of the chamber opened, and a person entered, whose features were veiled in the obscurity of twilight. But his voice could not be concealed, for it was the voice of Valencourt, At the sound, never heard by Emily, without emotion, she started in terror, astonishment, and doubtful pleasure, and had scarcely beheld him at her feet, when she sunk into a seat, overcome by the various emotions that contended at her heart, and almost insensible to that voice, whose earnest and trembling calls seemed as if endeavouring to save her. Valancourt, as he hung over Emily, deplored his own rash impatience, and having thus surprised her, For when he had arrived at the chateau, too anxious to await the return of the count, who he understood was in the grounds, he went himself to seek him, when, as he passed the tower, he was struck by the sound of Emily's voice and immediately ascended. It was a considerable time before she revived, but, when her recollection returned, she repulsed his attentions with an air of reserve, and inquired... With as much displeasure as it was possible she could feel in these first moments of his appearance the occasion of his visit ah emily said valencour that air those words alas i have then little to hope when you cease to esteem me you ceased also to love me most true sir said emily endeavoring to command her trembling voice and if you had valued my esteem you would not have given me this new occasion for uneasiness Valancourt's countenance changed suddenly from the anxieties of doubt to an expression of surprise and dismay. He was silent for a moment, and then said, I have been taught to hope for a very different reception. Is it then true, Emily, that I have lost your regard forever? Am I to believe that, though your esteem for me may return, your affection never can? "'Can the Count have mediated the cruelty which now tortures me with a second death?' The voice in which he spoke this alarmed Emily as much as his words surprised her, and with trembling impatience she begged that he would explain them. "'Can any explanation be necessary?' said Valancourt. "'Do you not know how cruelly my conduct has been misrepresented? "'That the actions of which you once believed me guilty, and, oh, Emily,' How could you so degrade me in your opinion, even for a moment? Those actions I hold in as much contempt and abhorrence as yourself. Are you indeed ignorant that Count de Villefort has detected the slanders that have robbed me of all I hold dear on earth, and has invited me hither to justify to you my former conduct? It is surely impossible. You can be uninformed of these circumstances, and I am again torturing myself with a false hope." The silence of Emily confirmed this supposition, for the deep twilight would not allow Valancourt to distinguish the astonishment and doubting joy that fixed her features. For a moment she continued unable to speak, and a profound sigh seemed to give some relief to her spirits, and she said, Valancourt, I was, till this moment, ignorant of all the circumstances you have mentioned. The emotion I now suffer may assure you of the truth of this and that, though I had ceased to esteem, I had not taught myself entirely to forget you. This moment, said Valancourt, in a low voice, and leaning for support against the window, this moment brings with it a conviction that overpowers me. I am dear to you, then, still dear to you, my Emily. Is it necessary that I should tell you so? she replied. Is it necessary that I should say, these are the first moments of joy I have known since your departure, and that they repay me for all those of pain I have suffered in the interval? Valancourt sighed deeply and was unable to reply, but as he pressed her hand to his lips, the tears that fell over it spoke a language which could not be mistaken, and to which words were inadequate. Emily, somewhat tranquilized, proposed returning to the chateau and then for the first time recollected that the count had invited Valancourt thither to explain his conduct and that no explanation had yet been given. But, while she acknowledged this, her heart would not allow her to dwell for a moment on the possibility of his unworthiness, his look, his voice, his manner, all spoke the noble sincerity which had formerly distinguished him, and she again permitted herself to indulge the emotions of a joy more surprising and powerful than she had ever before experienced. Neither Emily or Valancourt were conscious how they reached the chateau, whether they might have been transferred by the spell of a fairy, for anything they could remember, and it was not... Till they had reached the great hall that either of them recollected there were other persons in the world besides themselves. The count then came forth with surprise and with the joyfulness of pure benevolence to welcome Valancourt and to entreat his forgiveness of the injustice he had done him. Soon after which Monsignor Bonac joined this happy group in which he and Valancourt were mutually rejoiced to meet. When the first congratulations were over and the general joy became somewhat more tranquil The Count withdrew with Valancourt to the library, where a long conversation passed between them, in which the latter so clearly justified himself of the criminal parts of the conduct imputed to him, and so candidly confessed and so feelingly lamented the follies which he had committed, that the Count was confirmed in his belief of all he had hoped, and while he perceived so many noble virtues in Valancourt and that experience had taught him to detest the follies which before he had not only admired, he did not scruple to believe that he would pass through life with the dignity of a wise and good man, or to entrust to his care the future happiness of Emily St. for whom he felt the solicitude of a parent. Of this he soon informed her in a short conversation when Valancourt had left him. While Emily listened to the relation of the services that Valancourt had rendered Monsieur Bonnac, her eyes overflowed with tears of pleasure, and the further conversation of Count de Villefort perfectly dissipated every doubt as to the past and future conduct of him, to whom she now restored, without fear, the esteem and affection with which she had formerly received him when they returned to the supper-room the countess and lady blanche met valancourt with sincere congratulations and blanche indeed was so much rejoiced to see emily return to happiness as to forget for a while that monsieur lefoy had not yet arrived at the chateau though he had been expected for some hours but her generous sympathy was soon after rewarded by his appearance He was now perfectly recovered from the wounds received during his perilous adventure among the Pyrenees, the mention of which served to heighten to the parties who had been involved in it the sense of their present happiness. New congratulations passed between them and round the supper table appeared a group of faces, smiling with felicity, but with a felicity which had in each a different character. The smile of Blanche was frank and gay, that of Emily tender and pensive, Valencourt's was rapturous, tender and gay alternately. Monsieur Le was joyous and that of the Count, as he looked on the surrounding party, expressed the tempered complacency of benevolence. While the features of the Countess, Henri and Monsieur Bonac discovered fainter traces of animation. Poor Monsieur Dupont did not, by his presence, throw a shade of regret over the company for when he had discovered that Valancourt was not unworthy of the esteem of Emily, he determined seriously to endeavour at the conquest of his own hopeless affection, and had immediately withdrawn from Chateau Blanc, a conduct which Emily now understood, and rewarded with her admiration and pity. The Count and his guests continued together till a late hour, yielding to the delights of social gaiety and to the sweets of friendship, When Annette heard of the arrival of Valancourt, Ludovico had some difficulty to prevent her going into the supper room to express her joy, for she declared that she had never been so rejoiced at any accident as this, since she had found Ludovico himself. End of Volume 4,
3: Chapter 18 OG The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 18 19. Now my task is smoothly done. I can fly or I can run quickly to the green earth's end where the bowed welkin low doth bend and from thence can soar as soon to the corners of the moon. Milton. The marriages of the Lady Blanche and Emily saint Aubert were celebrated on the same day and with the ancient baronial magnificence at Chateau Le Blanc, the feasts were held in the great hall of the castle, which on this occasion was hung with superb new tapestry representing the exploits of Charlemagne and his twelve peers. Here were seen the Saracens with their horrible visors advancing to battle, and there were displayed the wild solemnities of incantation and the necromantic feats exhibited by the magician Jarl before the Emperor. The sumptuous banners of the family of Villeroy, which had long slept in dust, were once more unfurled to wave over the gothic points of painted casements, and music echoed in many a lingering close through every winding gallery and colonnade of that vast edifice. As Annette looked down from the corridor upon the hall, whose arches and windows were illuminated with brilliant festoons of lamps and gazed on the splendid dresses of the dancers, the costly liveries of the attendants, the canopies of purple velvet and gold, and listened to the gay strains that floated along the vaulted roof. She almost fancied herself in an enchanted palace and declared that she had not met with any place which charmed her so much since she read the fairy tales, nay, that the fairies themselves at their nightly revels in this old hall could display nothing finer, while old Dorothy, as she surveyed the scene, sighed and said the castle looked as it was wont to do in the time of her youth. After gracing the festivities of Chateau Le Blanc for some days, Valancourt and Emily took leave of their kind friends and returned to La Vallée, where the faithful Teresa received them with unfeigned joy and the pleasant shades welcomed them with a thousand tender and affecting remembrances and while they wandered together over the scenes so long inhabited by the late Monsieur and Madame Saint-Aubert and Emily pointed out with pensive affection their favourite haunts, her present happiness was heightened by considering that it would have been worthy of their approbation could they have witnessed it led her to the plane tree on the terrace where he had first ventured to declare his love and where now the remembrance of the anxiety he had then suffered and the retrospect of all the dangers and misfortunes they had each encountered since last they sat together beneath its broad branches exalted the sense of their present felicity which on this spot sacred to the memory of Saint-Aubert they solemnly vowed to deserve as far as possible by endeavouring to imitate his benevolence, by remembering that superior attainments of every sort bring with them duties of superior exertion, and by affording to their fellow beings, together with that portion of ordinary comforts, which prosperity always owes to misfortune, the example of lives passed in happy thankfulness to God, and therefore in careful tenderness to his creatures. Soon after their return to La Vallee, the brother of Valancourt came to congratulate him on his marriage, and to pay his respects to Emily, with whom he was so much pleased, as well with the prospect of rational happiness, which these nuptials offered to Valancourt, that he immediately resigned to him part of the rich domain, the whole of which, as he had no family, would, of course, descend to his brother on his decease. The estates at Toulouse were disposed of, and Emily purchased of Monsieur Cunel, the ancient domain of her late father, where having given Annette a marriage portion, she settled her as the housekeeper, and Ludovico as the steward. But since both Balancourt and herself preferred the pleasant and long-loved shades of La Vallée to the magnificence of Époirville, they continued to reside there passing, however, a few months in the year at the birthplace of Saint-Aubert, in tender respect to his memory. The legacy which had been bequeathed to Emily by Signora Laurentini, she begged Valencourt would allow her to resign to Monsieur Bonac. And Valencourt, when she made the request, felt all the value of the compliment it conveyed. The castle of Adelpho also descended to the wife of Monsieur Bonac was the nearest surviving relation of the house of that name, and thus affluence restored his long-oppressed spirits to peace, and his family to comfort. Oh, how joyful it is to tell of happiness, such as that of Valancourt and Emily, to relate that, after suffering under the oppression of the vicious and the disdain of the weak, they were at length restored to each other, to the beloved landscapes of their native country, to the securest felicity of this life, that of aspiring to moral and laboring for intellectual improvement, to the pleasures of enlightened society, and to the exercise of the benevolence, which had always animated their hearts, while the bowers of La Vallée became once more the retreat of goodness, wisdom, and domestic blessedness. How useful may it be to have shown... That though the vicious can sometimes pour affliction upon the good, Their power is transient, and their punishment certain. And that innocence, though oppressed by injustice, Shall, supported by patience, finally triumph over misfortune. And if the weak hand that has recorded this tale, Has, by its scenes, beguiled the mourner of one hour of sorrow, Or, by its moral, taught him to sustain it, The effort, however humble, has not been vain, nor is the writer unrewarded. End of Volume 4, Chapter 19 End of The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe